It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's the majestic solidity of the animal. Its density and massive muscular power that's immediately apparent even while it stands perfectly still. The awesome dimensions, too. An adult male is taller than most humans. Six feet withers to hoof, nearly double that from snout to tail, weighing upwards of a full ton. In the wild, it is a sight to behold. On a frigid morning in winter, steamy breaths emanate from its nostrils. It shudders its brown, double-thick coat for warmth. This is the American buffalo, the bison. Native to North America, this icon of a bygone era still survives, but in minuscule numbers compared to the past. Its horned profile once adorned nickels and postage stamps, but has endured as a proud, beloved symbol of the Wild West, even while this nation drove the species right to the edge of extinction. Greetings, listeners. Thanks for clicking that button. I'm Don Wildman, and this is American History Hit. Welcome. We've got a great one today. The numbers are simply staggering. Prior to the 19th century, the American bison, the buffalo, had a population estimated at more than 60 million strong, with dense herds stretching to the horizons from Alaska on down through the grasslands of the Middle West, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and east of the Atlantic. But by the late 1800s, organized slaughter and rampant disease had decimated the species. Counted in 1889, some 540 animals were left, 60 million to about 540 in less than a century. Destruction on an inconceivable scale, never mind the devastating impact on native cultures whose survival depended on plentiful buffalo. Then there's the ecological consequences. The prevalence of the buffalo had made manifest the infinite natural resources of this continent. Its sudden demise demonstrated how quickly it could all slip away as America pursued an all-too-singular destiny. And now, Ken Burns has made a documentary about it all. Filmmaker and author Ken Burns is a name synonymous with American documentary, television, and cinema. Over the past five decades, his signature style has become so familiar to worldwide audiences as to really have become its own genre of the craft. In film editing, it's known as the Ken Burns effect. From his earliest film, Brooklyn Bridge, on public television back in 1981, 
to later projects like the West or the Dust Bowl or his sweeping masterwork, The Civil War, which upon its initial broadcast in 1990 garnered an audience of 40 million. Mr. Burns' work has examined seemingly the entire historical landscape of America. And for this achievement, he has been awarded too many Emmys, Grammys, and People's Choices Awards to mention. But we'll add the Peabody and the Lincoln Prize to the heap, as well as his fairly recent induction into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. And he's not done yet. Ken Burns, right here on American History Hit, you do us an honor. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. You know, I live in a tiny little village in New Hampshire, and I've lived there for 44 years this week. And I have an old and faded New Yorker cartoon that shows three guys standing in hell, the flames licking up around them. And one guy says to the other, apparently my over 200 screen credits didn't mean a damn thing. So I, I always feel compelled to inoculate myself after the generosity of your introduction with the humbling fact of things, right? I understand. I understand. Someday I hope to make the same disclaimer. The American buffalo, the bison, confusing nomenclature, first of all, it is such an omnibus subject. So many historical, cultural, sociological, geographic, I mean, it goes on. It's one of those threads you pull on and immediately you're connected to the whole fabric of American history. You've been on this project for years, I imagine. What drew you to the subject? Well, we've actually been thinking about it for decades and decades. In fact, recently we unearthed a mid-90s pretty thick proposal for it. You know, we'd done series, as you mentioned, on the history of the West, on Lewis and Clark, on the national parks. And every time it renewed our interest in doing something about the buffalo, the idea that amidst a huge portfolio of biographies, you could do a biography of an animal. And that it would be, we presumed, a kind of you know, terrible tragedy, but also a parable of de-extinction. And I'm really grateful that we had all these decades intervening in which for some reason we just couldn't do it. And we ended up doing it now over the last several years, as you suggested. I think we, I hope we're better as filmmakers, but we're also learned to do something that we're not normally, particularly documentary filmmakers, are willing to do, which is we often, out of our sensibilities, and sometimes in a paternalistic or patronizing way, sort of acknowledge other points of view, right? You contain other points of view. But we really wanted to yield to those other points of view. And what I'm getting to is that the story of the buffalo is, as you suggest, this unraveling thread that touches every corner of American history and every aspect, good and bad, of who we are. It is, of course, the story of the people who were tied intricately to this animal for 10, 12,000 years, 600 generations, mm -hmm. and that those responsible for the decimation of the buffalo have really been engaged in that for six or seven generations. And so what we wanted to do was to, in this story, yield as much as we could to those who had a much more fundamental deep spiritual mm -hmm. as well as something for their existence relationship with this animal in which they used sustainably from the tail to the snout and as someone says a Mandan Hidatsa Indian named Gerard Baker in the film uh, the Mandan Hidatsas are in what is now North Dakota said that you know we even used the snort right because in our <laughs> rituals we were, were doing this and the waste was also used so there was nothing wasted in the treeless plains that was fuel for fires it's a phenomenal story, and it is a descent into the madness of their mass slaughter. And I think your numbers are 
in the late 80s are, are really liberal. You know, I think mm. there's far fewer, certainly far fewer wild and free in Yellowstone right. and other places. And the kind of that number in the hundreds is a motley collection of different things. We brought it yeah. back from the brink of extinction, but we've now got to move forward and ask ourselves just is saving it enough or do we yeah. wish to provide the ecosystems and the biomes that would permit the once the American Serengeti, the American Plains, which is mm. now down to a monoculture of whatever crop is being grown, the absence of all of the animals and all of the flora that used to be there, the silence yeah. of the plains is deafening. And whether we could in some ways, in some parts, without infringing on anybody, help to recreate our American yeah. Serengeti again. It's a very hopeful scenario that has a lot of different angles that are fascinating. Let's talk about the numbers first. Buffalo everywhere, far as the eye could see back in the day, everywhere. Why the success of the species? I mean, biologically speaking, it was, it was so dominant. How did that happen? So in various evolutionary moments, right, ice ages and other things, there had been much larger bison. It's actually technically, to end your confusion, the scientists called this animal bison bison. It isn't a buffalo, but that's the name and that's stuck and that's what we use along with bison mm -hmm. to describe it. It's a smaller version, even though it's the largest land mammal in North America that survived and has coexisted with native peoples for at least 10 or 12,000 years. It's big, it's agile, which you don't look at it. Uh, Steve Rinella, mm -hmm. the great writer, describes it as a souped up hot rod in a minivan shell, you know, <laughs> that it's able to jump laterally seven feet. It can clear a six foot fence. It can get up to 35 miles an hour. And this is not a cuddly zoo animal. This is not one yeah. to pet and whatever, as we know from the news reports that issue out, mostly out <laughs> yes. of Yellowstone, when some poor soul has avoided all the good advice and and has been gored by these magnificent mm. animals. And they're us. You look in their eyes and you see all of that history. And, you know, there was yeah. in Georgia in the mid-1700s, there was legislature passed laws, please don't kill the buffalo in the town green, which was ignored. When Jamestown settlers went up the Potomac River and were near where what is now Washington, D.C., they saw lots of buffalo. When Daniel Boone went through the Cumberland Gap, he was following a buffalo trail, a buffalo trace. That's, you know, he's not blazing it. The buffalo had done yeah. that. But by the beginning of the 19th century in 1800, they had been squeezed mostly into the Great Plains, in which they mm -hmm. still numbered 30, 35 million. And by the middle of the 19th century, by the end of the Civil War, they're still 12 to 15 million, impossible to know exactly how right. many. And that's where the tragedy comes, that this wanton slaughter where you just go for the tongue and leave everything else, or you just go right. for the hide and leave everything else to rot and decimate that number by the end of the 1880s to fewer than a, a thousand, as you right. said, is one of the great catastrophes in all of world history. There's no greater, the scientists in the film tell us, there's no greater slaughter of animals than what took place on the Great Plains in the 19th century, anywhere in world history. What the film really establishes so well is the almost species long, it seems like it's not, but I mean, their relationship to human beings has always been part of that story, at least when the human beings came along. And for that reason, those early hunters hunted off a lot of those bigger mammals, and the bison were so good at their species that they filled that vacuum. And uh, that accounts for a lot of what happened there in this land of plenty. 
Lots of food, lots of space. As a migratory species, these massive herds constantly move around. They will have not only an effect on human cultures, of course, but also a biological one. They are integrated in everything that is North American. It's a fascinating thing. This is commented upon throughout your film, primarily by Native voices, by Indigenous voices, which is such a, a lovely thing to see as a present day consideration, which is also refreshing. You know, they're talking about it now as much as, as what was in the past. Yes, exactly. And it's very important to understand that through the slaughter, we disrupted the connection of Native peoples to what they consider their relatives. We, we behave yeah. with a sense of superiority, you know, that we're the most powerful species, the dominant species on Earth. And as Wallace Stegner says, and we quote him in the opening of our second episode, you know, we are the dominant species on the planet and every other species, including the Earth itself, has reason to fear us. But mm -hmm. we are also the only species that if we want to, can save something. And so mm -hmm. the fact that we've created national parks, the fact that we've saved the buffalo speaks to this, you know, push me, pull you dynamic that is there. But Native people have had that connection to the buffalo separate. It's for some people, it's 100 years, 150 years, others 200, 250 years since mm -hmm. they had it. You know, there's a changing dynamic. It's not like everything was static. Horses had gone extinct or an early version, Eohippus had died out along with the mastodons and the woolly mammoths and the larger bison mm -hmm. of earlier eras and, and its place is this. But when the Spanish accidentally reintroduced horses to the continent, totally changed many agricultural tribes mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. edges of the Great Plains who couldn't move. You couldn't, with a dog, pull a travoy that far. It took mm. every effort of every tribe the entire month to get enough food to kill a couple of buffalo to sustain. Suddenly you have within a hundred years some of the greatest horsemen equestrians in the history of the world riding and being able to provide so it's this wonderful bounty and then of course then it all collapses because of the mm -hmm. market pressures other tribes dealing with white people want buffalo robes other tribes mm -hmm. are moving in because of the bounty and then white people come through and not just mm -hmm. passing through as they originally did but then settling the plains. So Native Americans controlled the plains for most of the 19th century, and then they didn't. And in right. that, and then they didn't, was the time of the hide hunters on the southern and the northern and the central plains that just decimated, killing by the tens of millions, these magnificent creatures, which then we tend to think of, which, it, you know, the buffalo is our national mammal, right? It's yeah. us. And we often think of the Native American as somehow symbol of what distinguishes us from other cultures. And yet, you know, it culminates in 1913 when we put them both on the Indian head nickel. And it seems to me this kind of outrageous moment that you're romanticizing, even fetishizing things that you have spent the last century trying to eliminate, trying to exterminate. And a lot of that is intertwined, that people, though it's not actually published policy of the United States government, it is clearly articulated verbally, and it's also said all around, if you kill the buffalo, you're killing the yeah. Indian, and you're controlling them. It is the dichotomy of the American nature. It really has gone throughout the entire length of our history, this push and pull as you talk about it. The buffalo were like, I mean, you mentioned the Serengeti, like the wildebeest of, of America to the rest of the world. I mean, there's a very, very famous fact that these herds existed in Europe and all around the world, and people were aware of this. How much of that drove the slaughter, the eventual commercialization of this animal? 
it's a lot of things that happen and contribute. In the beginning, of course, it's the stuff of legend and people come out there, hunters. There's one famous guy who goes and just want and slaughter. And, and finally, the native peoples in the northern plains said, uh-uh, leave your guns, go, get out of here. And they did. And then there are market pressures. First, you know, the beaver hats are a big fashion. They fall out of fashion. So buffalo tongues become something. Buffalo robes become something. Then there is a kind of industrial change that takes place after the Civil War. Leather, which is the fifth largest industry, one of our scholars tells us, fifth largest industry in the United States discovers a way to tan a buffalo hide, which makes it really good to drive the belts that run mm. the machines <laughs> of this new thing called the Industrial Revolution, the looms, sure. the various carting machines, all of the stuff that, that deal with leather belts they find that buffalo is particularly adaptable to that. And so the hide hunters go out and they start killing. And since they're only interested in the hide, they leave the heads for a while. And then eight, 900 pounds of meat, all the things. And the native peoples had been using it. Every single bone, mm -hmm. every single part of the animal was used in some way. And as Dayton Duncan, our writer, beautifully writes, you know, from the moment you're born and swaddled in a soft blanket of buffalo fur to whatever your shroud is, also buffalo, your entire life is interrelated among those Plains Indians with the buffalo. So all of a sudden, people are coming in and with this industrial efficiency are just killing them all. And then eventually, when they realize there are fewer and fewer buffalo, then they want to go and get heads for trophy. Because right? Mm, right. you don't want to be the person that doesn't have it. Theodore Roosevelt goes out to shoot a buffalo and can't find it for a while and finally does. And he mounts it in his uh, big great room at Sagamore Hill in Long Island. And all of a sudden, people are going out and they can't find any. Period. Sure. That's the aspect. It's almost forgivable in a sense, given the fact that there would be so many. It would seem infinite, especially back then before you know widespread media and so forth you would think, how could we possibly affect it? It kind of has a climate change aspect to it, doesn't it? How could we possibly damage this enormous resource? But in fact, they are good at it. How is the government involved in this? Well, you know, first of all, they're protecting people who are passing through, you know, heading mm -hmm. to California for gold, heading to Oregon for land and conversion of native peoples to the Southwest for business and other things. And so they're passing through this area. Then in post-Civil War, where people are moving into the plains to settle it, they are making deals with Native people to confine them on reservations, big, great reservations. And one of the deals in the Southern Plains is that there will be no white encroachment south of the Arkansas River. North of the Arkansas mm -hmm. River, it's fine. The Native population, to the extent that they agreed, and many tribes did not, that was what obtained. But of course, when you kill all the buffalo north of the Arkansas, you know, you go to the fort, and you say, so there's buffalo across there. And an officer said, if I am a buffalo hunter, I go where the buffalo are. So they cross mm -hmm. over into the territory they're not allowed, south mm -hmm. of the Arkansas River and part of what is Oklahoma and other parts of the Panhandle area. And they just slaughter the rest there. Same thing happens in the Northern Plains. It's delayed because the railroad doesn't get that far for a long time. And it's the railroad helps to promote the bringing in and out 
of the hide hunters and then the hides that they get. So it's a very complex evolving thing that takes place essentially in a fraction of a second across the mm. whole relationship of native peoples and uh, human beings, let's just say, and this magnificent animal. And they just disappear. But the signs are there. Everybody knows that. But there is that uncontrollable thing that has part of you know, this aspect of manifest destiny, which is so mm. cruel. It just basically says we're the dominant species. We're taking everything. That river's beautiful. Let's put a dam. That stand of trees mm. is wonderful. I wonder how much board feed is there. That canyon is magnificent. Let's see what minerals we can extract from mm. it. Yes. And there are impulses that go against this. The national parks, you know, which could only have happened in the United States and was an invention of democracy, sets aside land, some of the most magnificent land on the planet, for everyone, not for the noblemen or the rich who would previously own spectacular scenery. So we move against it, and there are people who are beginning to wonder how do we protect not only places but the animals that are in them. And when you think of what the buffalo's contribution, they're the largest mammal, they're the wildebeest, but there's no giraffe and there's no elephant, and there are grizzly bears and there are elk, which we think of as mountain animals. They went there just to save themselves into the Rocky Mountains where they remain. Yes, yes. But the elk were there along with the deer and the antelope and the buffalo roaming, and yeah. they would create, buffaloes would roll around in the dirt, have a mud bath, and create these buffalo wallows, millions and millions of them, which then created little pools where water could congregate, which brings in other, not just fauna, but flora that sort of thrive in disturbed areas. And so you have this incredible, vibrant Serengeti that's mm -hmm. there, filled with all sorts of animals. And all of that's decimated by agriculture, by ranching, and by the wanton slaughter, uh, the greatest slaughter in the history of humankind of large mammals. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ken, do you remember that? It was on the New York Times magazine cover. I think this was decades ago, but there was a couple who was promoting the idea of creating a massive national park, a prairie land national park. There is one, but this would be multi-state and recapture the grounds for the the buffalo and everything else. This was a movement that was uh, suggesting taking, you know, the small farms that were being eaten up by conglomerates and actually using this to recreate this prairie. I think that would be such a wonderful idea, and I never knew what happened to it. It's happening, and and it continues to happen. There are maybe now 350,000 buffalo. You know, Mm. it's not going extinct, and they're in enough different places that a particular strain of the disease or even a lightning strike is not going to wipe them out. About 20,000 are controlled by the United States government in national parks and in wildlife refuges all around. And about 20,000 or more are in control of about 80 native populations. And and the United Mm -hmm. States government just ceded control of the National Buffalo Reserve north of Missoula in Montana to the Salish and the Federated Salish and Kootenai people. And they've taken over this thing. And that's really, really great. And they are repatriating buffalo to various other tribes who may have, you know, our consulting producer, Juliana Branham, who's a Cherokee made a beautiful little film that's accompanying ours called Homecoming, and it follows the work particularly of a guy from Wind River Reservation in Wyoming named Jason Baldes, and he is repatriating buffalo east, and one of the most moving scenes is taking buffalo to the Menominee in Wisconsin, who probably have not had a relationship with buffalo for not just 150 years, but maybe 250 years, and to look in the eyes of the people Mm. who suddenly... It's like an old friend turning up on the doorstep and you go, there must be somewhere, some deep, deep, deep spiritual memory of this thing. And so it's happening. But there are also lots of buffalo standing in feedlots that are sustainably being raised for slaughter and and not just feedlots, but in corralled areas. But several NGOs are trying to do what that original couple was trying to do. And one of the notable ones that I'm aware of is called American Prairie that I've got a tangential relationship with, but they are setting aside in north central Montana, they're trying to set aside what they hope will be 3.2 million acres, a lot of it abutting against some reservations and a wildlife area, so federal land and native land, and then buying those individual ranches and they're doing it. And they're, if not halfway there, they're almost a halfway there of finding it. They think that 3.2 million is that range in which without fences, you the buffalo can roam, the deer and the antelope can play. You can begin to sort of rewild this because it's not yes, enough yeah. just to save this species. That's a zoo yeah. animal, right? You want them to be wild and free. And I think that in a way, our two-part film is the first two acts of a three-act play. And at the end of our film, we're sort of asking you, 
what are you going to do about this? They're saved, yeah. but they're in zoos and they're in these places. Can we create, you know, and it's so good to see the native populations taking, you know. Exactly. Taking control of the situation. Is yeah. The, really the intertribal Buffalo Council, which is now grown yeah. to, I think, 80 different tribes have some hand in ownership and stewardship of the buffalo. And they clearly have much bigger things. And it's huge for them. The buffalo is a leaner meat. Their diet, restricted on reservations, has changed their health profiles. And reintroducing the buffalo means they have a chance to sort of recapture not just the spiritual relationship to this animal, but also the healthful advantages of being connected to this beast, which right. was the lifeblood of so many native populations. And so as you mentioned, you know, we have lots of native speakers. Some of them are scientists themselves and teachers and educators and historians. And we just want to get out of the way and let them tell us, not we in a patronistic, patronizing way, tell them. Yeah, it's it's one of the, I mean, all your films do this, but this one particularly, I was struck by how seamlessly you integrate the biographies of these individuals, these big figures who are part of the story on all sides. But I'm thinking, of course, of Theodore Roosevelt, but also of Hornaday, you know, the Smithsonian man, Buffalo Jones, this uh, hunter. There's a whole list of people that are really remarkable in that they start out one way and they end up another, which is kind of emblematic of the story in general. But let's focus on, on Roosevelt for a moment. As a young man, he is a terrible tragedy. His mother and wife die in, a, in the same day, which is incredible. February 14th. We didn't celebrate Valentine's Day then the way we do now, but yeah, it was a heartbreaking loss, and he flees west. He's in his 20s when that happens. A life-defining moment, and it takes him west, and he becomes the westerner he kind of sees himself as being as a result of this fleeing from all of that. And in the course of it, he's proud to be a buffalo hunter. As you say, he has the trophies on his wall. And, but he is probably the most notable American who takes part in that transformation of realizing what we've done and that we need to reverse all this. I was, however, very interested in Hornaday. You know, the way that that man goes from being this taxidermist to, you know, shepherding this movement in some regards. It's an, an amazing person. Speak to that just for a brief moment, if you would. I think the motley, and there's no other <laughs> word to put it, a collection of people who begin to move to save them, have, they come from really complicated places in their lives. There's Charlie Goodnight in the panhandle of Texas, who's an Indian fighter, Indian hater, a rancher yeah. who wants to kill Buffalo. His wife wants him to save a few. He does, and then he changes. He has these wonderful relationships with the Native leaders at the end of his life, and he's done what he could to do it. There's Buffalo Jones, who's a hide hunter who goes to saving Buffalo, and there, his collection is what started, I learned yesterday, the relatively small herd at the Grand Canyon. There's Theodore Roosevelt, you know, who really doesn't do this on his own. He's dragged there by George mm -hmm. Bird Grinnell, who's one of the great mm -hmm. European descendant American heroes who has been sympathetic to Native viewpoints and lived with Native peoples for a long time. Ivy League graduate, he and Roosevelt start the Boone and Crockett Club. They begin to understand, he understands it better, and pulls Roosevelt along as his career so that by the time Roosevelt's president, he hasn't abandoned his horrible views on Native people, mm. but he's mm. understood about 
maybe in just a noblesse oblige white man's burden way, the value of saving the buffalo for conservation purposes. So they're free to be hunted in a sustainable way, which is right. so interesting that, you know, the conservation movement is born out of conserving, it's a conservative mm-hmm. impulse, conserving what we have and not destroying it. And so he's great. William T. Hornaday is the chief taxidermist for the Smithsonian. He's really good at his job and loves to kill those animals, goes out, has a hard time finding buffalo, brings back a calf. It's an amazing sensation on the lawn of the Smithsonian in the National Mall. And then he realizes after he does go and collect some specimen and creates this display that was for decades there at the Smithsonian. And sometimes people's only contact with the buffalo ever was looking at his stuffed animals. It's now in Fort Benton in north central Montana. But he says maybe we should be saving the beasts. And he proposes and helps create the National Zoo in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. And then later on, he's responsible for starting picking the site and designing the Bronx Zoo, the largest zoo in North America, which will feature prominently bison. And ironically, it's bison from there that will go back and seed various things when Roosevelt creates wildlife refuges. But a lot of the people involved in conservation are eugenicists. The Mm -hmm. pseudoscience that believes that there is a hierarchy of races, even ethnicities, even nationalities. And Hornaday and Theodore Roosevelt subscribe to many of the views of the most horrendous eugenicists, including sort of the father of it, Madison Grant, who's responsible for Mm -hmm. saving redwoods and all of these good things. So a lot of it is tied up in people doing this saving the right things for the wrong reasons. And there are also native people in the northern plains that are saving buffalo, and the largest herds are owned by native peoples. And their story is equally sort of frustrating and interesting as the United States pivots and begins to say we have to save them, you know, how that happens. So all of these fascinating characters who undergo some kind of migration of thought and of development in their character, but also sometimes hold views that we would find abhorrent uh, today. And and so for us, the complicating aspect of history, we have a sign in our editing room that says, neon sign that says, it's complicated. And (laughs) because you never want to sort of resort as we do often in storytelling to something that's binary, right? There's nothing binary in nature, right? Things are evolving, things are moving, these tribes are not static, they're growing, they're developing, they're changing from agriculture to nomadic because of the buffalo and the horses. All these things are in in a constant change. And so you don't wanna fix somebody with a label, oh, this is who they are. And so Hornaday becomes a really, really interesting character in this because as good as his impulses are to saving it, he's still imprisoned by his own race hatred, in this case, against Native peoples. And Theodore Roosevelt, you know, begrudgingly has a relationship with Quanta Parker, the great Comanche chief in the Southern Plains. But I'm not sure that we can say that he had a come to Jesus moment that saw him as an equal, despite the fact that we live in a country in which we acknowledge that everybody is equal. Yeah, there's a driving momentum in this country, which, boy, it just is relentless. And to tell the story of it, as I am challenged to do in this podcast, so often is spinning plates, trying to say this going on here and then over here, this going on. And it all happens so in such a packed way, certainly in the 19th century. It's incredible. 
And that's what the film does. It jumps around to different subject matters in a, such a balanced fashion. It's really entertaining, for one thing, but also really mindful of, of how complex the story really is. I was making my jazz film in the late 90s, and Wynton Marsalis, who plays a large role on camera in that, one of the talking heads, says, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. Yeah. And when he said that, I felt like this is what we are trying to do, to contain the contradictions, the undertow. What, you know, sometimes that surface of that water looks pretty placid, and you don't know what's roiling beneath it. And it's okay. In no way mm -hmm. does telling a complex version of American history traumatize anybody. And it actually improves us when we begin to realize that tolerance has to do with the fact that all of us are deeply flawed. All of us have impulses in this way and that way. And I think we've always been dedicated to trying to tell as complex a story as we can possibly handle and manage in the storytelling format that we've chosen on public television, particularly only public television. But we know that we have to honor that complexity and that anything mm -hmm. that tries to simplify our history does a disservice not just to that history, but to us right now. It disarms us. It makes us unprepared for the complexity of the modern world because while history doesn't repeat itself, no event has ever happened twice, it may, as Mark Twain possibly said, it rhymes, you know, and we feel <laughs> as we work on those films, those rhymes. I mean, to me, the film I did before The Buffalo was called The U.S. and the Holocaust, in which we're dealing with eugenics. And then it turns right. up in The Buffalo film and you go, what? So you have to be able to say that if you're the most exceptional country on earth, which Americans are very frequently disposed to articulate, then boy, does it involve constant and rigorous self-study that is self-critical. And if you take sure. that away, you are no longer the most exceptional country on earth. You're actually kind of mediocre if you're not yeah. engaged, actively engaged in an accurate history. I've never known how the exceptionalism has taken such hold. I think of America as an exceptional place, certainly, but I don't think it does us any favors to ignore what has gone wrong and to embrace it and understand it and then see how we rise above it. That's exactly I mean, that right. seems to me the greatest statement Well, just of my, migrate that to a, something else, like a sport, right? Like Tom mm -hmm. Brady is considered the greatest quarterback of all time. Do you mm -hmm. think that he ever once stopped studying film? Oh, I'm the greatest. I don't have yeah. to study the films. I don't have to be prepared. I don't have to do this. He saw, he sought out what he did wrong, dedicated sure. to being better. And that's what we ought to be doing, not limiting the history out of fear. I mean, there's a wonderful woman who was on a, a short YouTube. Her name is Katharina Metro. She teaches history in Bethesda, Maryland. And she said, you know, I was born in Germany. I grew up in Germany, which arguably has one of the worst histories. Mm -hmm. And she said, I got this history taught from the earliest age, and I'm not traumatized. In right. fact, referring to what their, something their president had said, largely a ceremonial role, their chancellor, their prime minister is the central governmental figure, but their president had said, I love my country with a broken heart. And there is mm -hmm. nowhere you can go in Germany, particularly Berlin, where you can't find evidence at cobblestone here, cobblestone there, telling you the horrible history that they have. And it's made them better. And then she looks at the camera and she says, and you know who saved us? You know who imposed a democracy on us and insisted that we have an educational system that teaches everything from the earliest age? It's you.
Yeah. And so yeah, she think. is the perfect spokesperson and the perfect answer, the antidote to those who just think, oh, well, let's not hurt anybody's feelings about the existence of slavery and the terrible stuff. Or let's tell this story so simplicity that Rosa Parks, yeah, tell her, but you can't mention race, right? Sometimes, Suddenly sir. you're a third rate country when that happens. Exactly. You've already spoken to the structure of the film. It's the fall and the rise, but the rise is uh, mitigated by all kinds of circumstances. Eventually, a permanent preserve for the bison is created in 1907. It is not a magic fix. It will take years to build the herd up. But let's talk about one of the great emblems of this period, the buffalo nickel. <laughs> on one side, you have the profile of the native chieftain, Iron Tail. He was a celebrity chieftain in those days. And on the other side, the buffalo. I, I love the buffalo nickel. It's one of those emblems of American history I just uh, I love. But it has an ironic story behind it, doesn't it? Well, it really does. I mean, first of all, the uh, we think it's Iron Chief. And the buffalo, we know the name, and he's slaughtered in the meatpacking district in Manhattan. I'm, I'm in Manhattan. It's, it's up a few blocks. He just goes to slaughter. He's parted out and eaten. And so it to me speaks to this incredible irony that I'm talking about, that all of a sudden we're fetishizing, we're romanticizing this beast and these people who we've spent the better part of the last century exterminating. And suddenly mm -hmm. they become symbols of us. And there's a wonderful moment in the film that follows that scene by George Horsecapture Jr., who's from a small tribe in northern central Montana, and he really allows us, I think, many times in the film, as do most of the native speakers, to suddenly change our own perspective around and see it from a different point of view. And he said, it just makes me wonder, why do you have to kill the things you love? Mm, yeah. Which is a really, really right. elemental, simple question. But try to answer that. I mean, the answer to that, it needed more than the four hours that we have. Right. And mm -hmm. and it goes to deeply spiritual as well as historical, as well as ethnographic, as well as ecological things. It's rooted in our history and these impulses. And I think this is us. I mean, I, I was coming out of the Holocaust film and other things that I've been working on Vietnam in recent years. You didn't think that this story of this animal would be able to contain everything. You know, William Blake, the romantic English poet said you could find the world in a grain of sand. You want to know who we are as Americans? Study you study the, the buffalo and then all of a sudden it just radiates out. It's like plunking a stone in a placid yeah. pool and all of a sudden, you, oh my goodness, it's touching every corner cool. of that pond. And that's what we tried to be able to contain. You really put our arms around the story of the American buffalo, realizing that the story of the American buffalo is the story of us. It is a, a beautiful and a sweeping documentary. It, in 1933, there are 4,000 buffalo left. Today, 350,000. It does speak to the hope behind this chance. It reminds me of the Eagle, especially with the DDT and all that in the 60s, and the chance to get that back. And it seems like this might happen, and it might happen in organic fashion that will include the truth of American, you know, as much as our past and the wrongs we did. It was really, it's a really neat thing. Gerard Baker, uh, the Mandan Hidatsa Indian, says these are our brothers, right? Mm -hmm. they, they feel that the buffalo is a relation. And that kind of kinship has been absent from almost all manifestations of manifest destiny. You know, it's just not there. We're superior. We're taking this. 
this land to use for ranching or for agriculture, these forests for timber, these rivers for whatever power can be done, transportation routes. Uh, you people that have been here for 12,000 years, get out of the way. Just get mm -hmm. out of the way. You are not really people. You are inferior. And so I think being able to, at the end, imagine what it might be for us to have a relationship in which we can acknowledge our power as a species, but realize that we are not disconnected from it, that the things no. that we do have consequences, not just for a particular animal, in this case, the American buffalo, but for other human beings and ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I always want to say, let's be liberated by the truth about ourselves, both the positive stuff of which I could spend another hour with you talking and arguing why the United States government, responsible for so many screw-ups, yeah. is the best force in the history of the world. And I could start yeah. with that declaration and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and go to land-grant colleges and interstate highways and national parks and homestead acts and right. child labor laws and you know Social Security and GI Bill and interstate highway and man on the moon. You just... You can just, I've just just glossed over what it could be and just yeah. say, I hold this up to anything else there. Like, what else is close in terms of influence in the, in, on, on the lives of human beings? And it's not. But you can't tell that story. You can't celebrate that without understanding the yes but of it. Yes. And the yes but of it is what makes storytelling, which makes history, which is mostly made up of the word story, so interesting and so vibrantly a part of not only where we are right now, Faulkner said history is not was but is, but where we're going. And if you want to go someplace, you got to embrace a complicated history. Exactly. Well, you're an inspiration, sir. Thank you very much. Your films have always, uh, I've always enjoyed them. This one seems uniquely stylistically appropriate to the subject matter, sweeping in its scope, but also delving into all the different aspects of this very, very complex subject. When is this going to be shown and, and when can people see it? Sure. Well, the we that I've been using throughout is not a royal we. We don't have that in the United States. And so it was written by Dayton Duncan. It's co-produced by Julie Dunphy. And as I said, our consulting producer was a Native American, Juliana Branham and edited. There's a whole team of which mm -hmm. I am representing. I'm the conductor, I guess, is mm -hmm. the best analogy I can think of. It will be broadcast on PBS on the first episode on the 16th, twice of October, and the 17th, okay. the second episode, twice. It will be available for streaming then for several weeks, if not months, and DVDs and Blu-rays will be out. And we're very excited about it. And I'm as proud of this film as anything we've worked on in large measure because I think that, you know, there's a religious saying that goes, as above, so below. And it seems to me, in your very kind comment about the film, that you can see that the architecture of the atom bears a remarkable similarity to the architecture of the solar system. Mm -hmm. So it is possible <laughs> to be both sweeping and atomic in your interests so that you tell specific stories about specific human beings or specific instances and at the same time you're trying to relate it across a much bigger wider path in which in this case you're thinking about 12,000 years of life human and animal life 
on this continent. And then you've got, I think, a real saga. You know, we talk about sagas as being multi-generation. Well, this is 600 generational a story that is about as interesting a story. And I just maybe just ending, I, I'm an anthropologist's son. And I grew up with a map above my bed of the United States that had the political boundaries of the states, but no states listed. What were listed were native yeah, nations, cool. individual. So I grew up with, uh, and I have to admit it, the romance of the word Assiniboine, mm-hmm. right? Or Arapaho, right? Yeah, Just uh-huh. to take two A names, right? Beautiful vowel sounds, yes. Just beautiful vowel sounds. And you think of so much of our history we have ceded to one perspective. And now it's time to really say, you know what? We can't yeah. figure this all out unless we can see it from a variety of perspectives. And let's go over to that mountaintop and see what the Salish and the Blackfeet think, what the Comanche exactly. and the Kiowa believe, what the Arapaho and the Mandan Hidatsas think. Ken Burns, I am sorry to wrap this up because I could go on for hours talking to you. and. We will all watch this movie in October, and I'm looking forward to that big series you do on Tom Brady. And I'm a, <laughs> Jet, I'm a Jets fan saying that. Thanks for joining us, Ken. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of American History Hit. Please hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a nice review there. And if you'd like to make suggestions on any future subject matter, send us an email at ahh at historyhit.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you on the next new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. Bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.